At Morgan Stanley, old school hard work meets bold new thinking. At 88 years old, we still see the world with the wonder of new eyes, helping you discover untapped possibilities and relentlessly working with you to make them real. Old school grit, new world ideas. Morgan Stanley. To learn more, visit morganstanley.com slash why us. Investing involves risk. Morgan Stanley Smith Barney, LLC. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. You're listening to The Exchange in progress. Income markets are, are gigantic, and there's a lot of buyers out there. And where there's a yield, uh, there'll be buyers. And, and I think that, that will, I expect that'll be the case. It, it might, not that it wouldn't have some upward pressure on, uh, on rates for us not to be a buyer anymore. But, you know, we, we weren't a buyer for a very long time. We thought we'd never go back in after the global financial crisis, and we, we kind of had to after the pandemic financial crisis just to keep the markets working, and, and now we've stopped again. Good. Thank you very much, Chair. Now yield back. Gentlemen, yields back. Noteworthy. Uh, I want to thank, uh, in particular, our members, Mr. Fitzgerald and Ms. Williams, for uh, their additional minutes back to the Fed Chair. Uh, In a a rate environment like this, time is money, and that's much more valuable these days. Um, I'd like to thank the chair for his testimony. Um, And uh, without objection, all members will have five legislative days within which to submit additional written questions for the uh, witness to the chair, which will be forwarded to the witness for his response. I ask uh, you, Chair Powell, to please respond as promptly as you're able. Uh, And with that, the hearing's adjourned. Thank you. Welcome to The Exchange, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans. As you just heard there, Fed Chair Jay Powell wrapping up day two of his testimony on Capitol Hill. He didn't really back down from his hawkishness yesterday, although he did try to couch it in his opening statement by insisting the Fed is not on a preset course and remains a data dependent. The market's flattish in response today. The Dow is at session lows, down 146, and the Nasdaq is positive by about 19 points. Although, check out the 210 yield spread. Pretty clear signals here. It's hitting a new extreme of about 110 basis points. That's putting pressure on the banks today. We'll circle back to that in a moment. But first, let's get to Steve Leisman with the highlights. Steve, all of the greatest uh, hits from today's session. It feels like most of the, the, you know, the damage, I, I was going to say, was done yesterday. And he didn't really back off of that today. No, he did make, I would say, uh, uh, Kelly, some more modestly dovish remarks in day two of the testimony compared with day one. But markets uh, seem to uh, really not react to them and really stuck to those comments from yesterday uh, uh, the, of the uh, uh, they also have to, to process, by the way, some stronger economic data. Uh, here are some of the key remarks he made that I thought were at least somewhat more dovish. In his first answer, Powell uh, said no decision has been made on how much to hike at the March meeting. Uh, and uh, he said that uh, we're not on a preset course for March and we'll be guided by incoming data. He also said slowing down the pace of rate hikes uh, is a way to monitor the lags effects of monetary policies. Those comments are not... I would say directly contradictory to what he said yesterday, the comments that rock markets when he said the Fed could increase the pace of rate increases in response to data. But they do emphasize maybe the more dovish potential outcome here. While it's unclear whether he intended to take the edge off yesterday's bond yield increases, if he was trying, he didn't do very well, good of a job. The big gains from yesterday's in the outlook for the Fed remain with the peak funds rate still around 566. Uh, and uh, the uh, probability of a 50 basis point rate hike 
still elevated at 68%. Uh, the reason could have as much to do, uh, Kelly, with the data we got. Both the JOLTS report of job openings and the ADP report on employment were higher than expectations. That is, they lean towards whatever betting you might be making on a more aggressive Fed rate hike. No, that absolutely we should highlight that. I mean, Steve, real quickly, the JOLTS report, so this is job openings. It's, uh, you know, we get it with a lag, but... You know, there was some moderation, but um, it's still a lot more openings. And uh, we've seen more slowing in some of the, you know, higher frequency Indeed and, and ZipRecruiter and all of that. But this one not exactly showing that the Fed is succeeding in slamming the brakes on hiring demand. Yeah, Kelly, this is one of those things where even if it's half wrong, it's still too high. And that's right. kind of the setup for the jobs report we're going to get on Friday, which is, you know, if it's half of the pace of January, it's still too high. So it doesn't seem like, at least in raising rates now, uh, the Fed is in danger of making too much of a mistake here. Um, I think that may be true later on this year, but certainly bringing up the funds rate and uh, and the action right now in the bond market, which is helping the Fed, I think, slow the economy, it's got to be helpful. I will say he's getting some pushback from some of the more uh, liberal lawmakers there about the impact of it. But those liberal lawmakers just don't have a better response, which is uh, if you want to tackle inflation, raising rates is the Fed's tool. Right. Uh, we just, by the way, had a 10-year auction, a little little soft. We're going to go back to that in a moment. Steve, thank you. Uh, Chair Powell has now seemingly left the door open to a half-point hike again after previously saying they'd move in quarter-point increments from now on. Mohamed El-Arian warning earlier today about this mixed messaging. Listen. If you go back to 50, you're negating all the forward policy guidance you gave over a month ago. If you stay at 25, you fall further behind on the inflation front. So, you know, it's a situation, it's a hole that they dug for themselves and they keep on digging. They, they have to stop digging themselves such a deep hole because there's real consequences. Well, he's not the only one who's taken issue with Powell's inconsistent guidance. One of my next guests says it's been costing investors big time. With us now is Nancy Tangler, Laffer Tangler Investments CEO and CNBC contributor Peter Bookvar of Bleakley Advisory Group. Here with me on set. Welcome to you both. Nancy, I'll start with you. I saw you nodding there to what Mohammed said. Let me just ask, why does it matter if the Fed changes from 25 to 50 and back again? Well, I, I don't think it really does, except for the predictability factor. I mean, if 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 Powell is more interested in in um, a Volcker-esque kind of tenure, uh, then he's he's not achieving that. There have been so many false messages throughout this last year. Uh, you know, I'm not even thinking about thinking about raising rates. 75 basis points is off the table, and a couple weeks later, we get it. This recent disinflationary um, comments that he made, and then now we're back to, hmm, those jobs numbers look pretty strong. Maybe we need to raise more. And the market cares more about predictability than they do about the actual rate level, because we know we're closer to the end than we were a year ago. So I think that's why you're seeing the NASDAQ hold up pretty well, because I, I think they're they're interested in seeing um, the, the Fed give us a consistent message. This comment about being data dependent, they're looking at backward data, backward looking data instead of forward looking. And that's, I think, one of the reasons they have to keep um, digging themselves out of the hole. Why do you think, Nancy, that the NASDAQ is holding up a little bit better? I am curious about some of that differentiation we're seeing today. 
Well, I think in it, you know, it depends on which part of the NASDAQ you're talking about. The names that we own are producing really strong earnings growth. They've raised guidance on margins in some cases and on earnings. So reliable growers in a slowing economic environment, which is what we're getting. I mean, mm. whether it's a hard landing recession, we think we're going into a recession. And and in in that case, you can still make money in stocks, but you need to be in the right segment. So the cyclicals do well in this particular environment. And uh, that's where we're focused. And, right. and so the NASDAQ technology names that have held up really nicely. Broadcom's report was incredible. Um, that's one of our largest holdings. That Those are the places where we're redirecting so capital. So now it's not like 2020. Now if you see NASDAQ leading the way, you can go, well, then the slow growth trade is on. You know, the growers in a no growth environment trade. Peter, before I get to you, let's just hit the results of this 10 year because the yields are creeping back up towards 4% in its wake. Rick Santelli joining us. Rick, uh, what's the deal? Well, it was a horrible pricing. Now, do keep in mind that these are nine-year, 11-month. It's a reopening. That should make some difference. Sometimes it makes it a little easier to move the paper. But in this instance, the yield was 3.985 at the auction. But the when-issued market was trading nearly three basis points lower, 3.958. So it tailed almost three basis points. Everything else is almost meaningless when you have a lower yield you have a higher price when you have a higher yield as in this case you have a lower price if you're auctioning securities you don't want a lower price so most of the other metrics were near 10 auction averages but the pricing gives it a diazin dog and as you look at the chart you could clearly see the market voiced its opinion almost immediately on the results of the auction as yields are moving a bit closer to four percent and by the way if everything is as hawkish as they say and the Fed has their thumb on the pulse, why are 10-year notes so far behind? Why is the curve so inverted? We still can't even hold 4%. And if you open the chart up, we're nowhere really near that four and a quarter, which is the fall high-yield close, which twos and threes have circumvented. But the rest of the curve is still below. Kelly, back to you. Thanks, Rick. Peter, I turn to you because yesterday, one of the big takeaways that, you know, as I talked to people was the fact that we saw the short end really spike, but the 10-year yield went in some ways lower. And was that really the first time that kind of what Nancy's just saying, that we're seeing this, this trend where growth in the future to people looks like it's just going to be weaker? And if does this auction kind of fit that theory or what do you think is going on here? It is. You know, there's the belief on with some and also the Fed that they can raise interest rates and the whole economy is going to be impacted immediately. No, what happens is first the people that need to borrow, someone buying a home, a car or a house or a business that needs to raise money, they're immediately impacted. But if my adjustable rate mortgage doesn't come due until November, I'm not yet affected yet. Totally. If you have a fixed rate mortgage. Right. If, I, if I'm in real estate and my 2020 construction loan doesn't mature until early 2024, I'm not yet affected. So it takes time for the rise in interest rates to spread its way throughout the economy. And that is what is happening. So when people debate no landing, soft landing, hard landing, it, it's, it's, it's metastasizing <laughs> over time. And yes, it spreads and spreads as time goes on, as loans come due, as borrowers need to borrow, as projects don't get done because of the high cost of capital. See, why do you make more sense on this than the Fed chair? Because I listen to you and I go, <laughs> yes, that sounds to me like how it works. And small business loans, you know, Jeffries has documented this. They're going to be near 10 percent by the summer. Powell's not focusing on that. He's not getting up there and saying, guys, listen, this is how it works. Just wait. He's saying, well, the CPI was too hot last month. Right. They've, some people have started by talking about the lags. 
That's why I don't think the Fed is going to recalibrate to 50, because the last few statements have They've talked about the lags. You don't think they're going to go so, to 50? I, I, I think they've done the 75 four times. They've done the 50. They're going to go 25 from here, acknowledging those lags. Is the market going to rally then if they only go 25? I, well, or if, if, does if, that framework not work anymore? If we reverse to Monday, we were expecting 25. If you compare it to what he said yesterday, then yeah, maybe. And I think there's risk to Friday's payroll number being much weaker than expected because of the big discrepancy between what ADP has been saying and what the BLS has been saying. So I do think in the short term, you're probably set up for maybe a bond relief rally, but I think the markets need to shift their attention to rates staying high for a while, and just by keeping rates high, even if they stop going up, exactly. just keeping them there is a continuous form of monetary tightening. I mean, Nancy, so as we're all kind of getting frustrated with the communication, would that nature of explanation help here? You know, when he's going back and forth with Warren over should it be jobs or should it be inflation, again, it's this idea of the economy is going to slow, period. We don't want price pressures to stay where they are. And that's obviously happening just at a slow, maybe a little bit more slowly than they would like, right? I mean, Nancy, I wonder if you could just comment quickly. 2006, all they had to do was pull the rug out, rate hikes, boom, the whole thing collapsed. It was all leverage built. The banks imploded, American balance sheets imploded. We don't have that dynamic this time around. They're hiking and they're hiking and the whole economy is built on over too strong demand and too high prices and I, it, without even a lot of leverage, I guess, except on the government sector. How does it all, how do they get it to collapse? Well, I don't think they can, Kelly. I think there's a couple of things going on. And one of those is that fiscal policy matters. And Volcker called out uh, Congress when he was the Fed chair and said, you got to stop spending so much money. But this chairman won't do that. So I think that's one issue. You've got a much stronger uh, consumer. This was a self-inflicted wound, if you will. And and I think Peter's right that you, you really have to pay attention to um, what what the data is going is is forward the forward looking data because the backward looking data has happened. And if you look at the the lending markets, lending standards have tightened, mm-hmm. BAA spreads have come in, which is counterintuitive. They've also tightened. So the market is is reacting to a, a number of things as this rolls through. And the lag that Peter points out is is very important. The supply chain has cleared up. And so I think you're going to see the continued symmetrical moves down in inflation um, that match the way we moved up. It's just not going to be linear. Yeah. And so this, this labor this labor number on Friday, I think the revision to last month is going to be critical because in the previous month, we got a revision of over 200,000 jobs. So this minute focus on a data point that is imperfect at best and then is subject to re- revision, uh, I think is not what the Fed should be focused on, nor sure. the market. And final quick word, Nancy, yesterday, in response to Powell's comments, Gina Sanchez said she thought this meant soft landing is out the window, that the way he was talking about tackling this problem, the aggressiveness, you know, I, would you agree with that statement or do you still think there's a way, as Powell said, you know, we don't need, I think it's something effective, we don't need a recession, <laughs> but what's now in your playbook uh, in terms of that? We're assuming um, a mild recession. And, you know, I, as I wrote in my note, I don't really have to be right about that to get my my portfolios positioned appropriately in my asset allocation. Mm-hmm. But I do think that um, this notion of a soft landing, I just don't think we're that clever. Um, and I think, as Peter points out, the lag is important and we don't know the full effects of, yeah. of the quick and rapid. And this is very similar to Arthur Burns, rapid tightening and then reactive data focus. So uh, that's my only concern. All right. We'll leave it there. Thank you both very 
very much today, Nancy Tangler and Peter Bookvar. Now, rising rates also continue to hit commercial real estate. KBW says you can forget about any soft landing there. Those rate hikes come on top of persistently high vacancy rates in office space, and we're already seeing some defaults as a result. Fed Chair Powell yesterday saying the Fed is keeping an eye on exposure across the banking sector. But my next guest forecasts a 30 percent drop in office values and highlights some of the banks and insurance companies that could feel the most pain. Let's bring in Jade Romani from KBW, a Stiefel company, for more. Jade, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. So the important thing here everyone's wanting to know is what happens if the shoe drops? You know, if values go down the way you expect, are these losses already priced in? Well, um, we were going to title our report, Assuming We Survive, but we <laughs> went with no soft landing for Siri instead. And in all seriousness, you know, the crux of what we published is we expect a downturn to unfold in commercial real estate. We expect a 30% plus decline in office values, 10 to 15% in multifamily, and peak to trough declines could exceed 20 to 30%. To your question, we think values are 30 to 50% into the correction, and we believe that's worse than the consensus. Right. And you're, so you're saying you think we're, about, we're showing some of the names, uh, Bank Marin, Community Financial Corp., Bank of the Ozarks. Uh, those are names that in, could have 22, let's put it 12 to 22 percent of exposure in terms of their loans. The Fed says they're keeping an eye on this, but could commercial real estate to this cycle be what residential was last cycle? Or I guess arguably CMBS was that last cycle, too. We think that there will be a meaningful correction in commercial real estate, and our framework implies 1% to 3% loan losses, um, the impact to book values and equities for the various lending companies in KBW's coverage, which includes the commercial mortgage REITs, the banks, the life insurance companies, and alternative asset managers. Uh, those hits would be higher uh, depending on the amount of leverage. Yeah, so one of the things the Fed chair emphasized was he said this is not a problem that we see systemic to big banks, implying, in other words, we wouldn't have a rerun of 08. There are a couple of big banks you mentioned. Wells in particular comes up with a little bit more exposure. Even Goldman, can you explain that? Well, I'm going to be polite uh, and have to defer to my colleagues who cover the banks. Uh, my primary focus is the commercial real estate finance sector. What I will say is that U.S. bank Siri exposure does remain significant by and large. Most of the risk is in the small to mid-cap names. However, um, overall, the bank exposure to office is over 10% of loans for about 16 companies, which we flagged in our report. Right. And those were the smaller banks I mentioned, um, you know, kind of on the question about Wells. There we're talking about 4 to 5% of loans. Goldman, uh, you know, even though they have more uh you know, exposure even on the equity side, you're saying only 2% of tangible common equity, or at least your colleague is. So just want to clear that up. So you say the REIT sector, commercial REIT sector, is most at risk. Are these declines already priced into some of the names you highlight there, BXMT, KREF, K, uh, CMTG, and the rest? We don't believe that the risk is fully priced. Um, we project in a various scenario analysis a 4 to 8% decline in book value for the sector, and as much as 12% for some of the names that we highlight. Uh, so that could imply lower book values. And the trough price to book multiples range from 60 to 80% of book value. And we're you know, toward the middle, higher end of that range during a trough period. So there could be downside to book value and to the valuation multiple. And finally, the life insurers should get a mention here as well. You know, when we're thinking uh, as to who's holding the book, what, who are the names there that you think could have some exposures? I'm going to have to defer on that, the specific names to my colleagues, but 
for the life insurance sector overall, we expect serious stress to be very gradual and manageable for that space. What would your final comment be if you were, let's say, you know, let's say you're testifying in front of Congress, Jade, and they say, OK, uh, we have a combo of rising rates and uh, this sort of lack of return to work trend. And if this plays out the way that you expect, what are the knock on effects going to be to the broader economy? How would you answer that question? Or at least how, what would the effects be to the banks that you most specifically cover? I mean, I think it'll be isolated to commercial real estate, uh, but that the effects will be widespread. With respect to return to office, you know, I think it's not just office that is impacted, but it's also the surrounding businesses in those um, low return to work environments. There's, there's knock on impacts, which we point out in our report, the multifamily, for example. So, you know, I would try to encourage um, return to work to the extent possible. I think office is facing the twin headwinds of higher rates and those slow return to work. But overall, I mean, this reflects the impact of technology, which is really that uh, COVID accelerated the adoption of remote work trends that were already in place. And that's generally something we don't think we can avoid. And I think it's it's going to continue. Yeah. And hopefully they have the equity to cover those uh, declines that might be experienced. Jade, thanks for your time today. Appreciate it very much. Thank you for having me. Jade Romani with KBW. Coming up, housing activity has slammed to a halt, but prices there aren't dropping like you might expect. Is supply the reason for that? And what does it mean for activity from here on out? We'll ask Black Knight's Andy Walden next. Plus, the war in Ukraine is driving a new surge of American energy exports to Europe. But is the bump a temporary blip or is the oil export boom here to stay? The CEO of America's largest energy port joins us from Sierra Week. And as we head to break, let's get a look at the markets, which are at fresh session lows. The Dow's down to 11 now. Even the Nasdaq has gone negative. The 10-year note, just a hair under 4%, 3991. We're back after this. This is The Exchange on CNBC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production, and they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. Welcome back. Mortgage demand firming up a bit after hitting a nearly three-decade low. New data this morning showing applications up about 7% last week from the week prior. Refis even rose. Who is refining in this environment? Uh, demand for both is still way below last year's levels. The reason for that, there's no inventory. Prices are still high, and rates for a 30-year fixed mortgage are still above 7%. So where do we go from here? Let's welcome back Andy Walden, VP of Enterprise Research at Black Knight. Andy, welcome. What's your take on the latest uh, round of data here? 
Yeah, I mean, I think you you covered it really well there. I mean, we absolutely saw some demand return to the market early this year when we saw rates get down closer to 6%. Very welcome news for lenders and, and transactional-based folks out there in the market. And it did show that that underlying demand that still sits there if and when rates come down. Um, but at the same time, sellers are, are backing away from the market. And so we still have these massive inventory deficits out there, and that's resulting in, in price hardening this spring. What's going to happen in this in kind of the spring selling season? Then it originally looked like we could be off to a, a good start, an early start. And what now? Yeah, I mean, you're right, right? So we saw demand return early, the later months in, in February. So we went from a, a 30% deficit down to a 15% deficit. We're back to a 25% deficit in terms of, of demand. I think what we'll see is is a modest rise in transaction volumes. We're already seeing that in our, our collateral analytics data for the month of February. And so we're probably nearing the bottom there in terms of just overall sales volume and, and purchase origination volumes out there in the market. But it's going to be a slow and, and kind of bumpy return to normalcy. And, and unfortunately, I mean, for folks wanting to see prices remain high, the, the data is good for them right now. You're seeing kind of this this stalemate out there in the market, not a return to balance, but we're, we're, we're not seeing anybody budged here. So low transaction volumes, hardening home prices is kind of how we see this playing out over the next few <laughs> it, months. It's almost like the Bitcoinization of the housing market. You know, we there's only 21 million that are ever, we're ever going to have, and everyone went <laughs> and snapped one up, and everyone's just holding on to them. I mean, I don't know how yeah. you get more image. So in a market where, if we go back to 06, when prices started to drop, we overbuilt, you know, we saw people then immediately back away. Um, what's, what's it going to take to get prices to turn in this market? Yeah, and what's noticeably different about 06 through 2012 was the Fed dropped interest rates to try to catch the market there. And so you didn't see this lock-in effect that we're seeing take place now. True. The other thing that took place there was we had this massive wave of default activity. We had 25% of, mortgage, uh, of homes were mortgaged with adjustable rate loans. So they were much more volatile and you had interest rate sensitivity and folks were willing to sell because their rates were resetting anyway. We're, we're running at some of the lowest levels of, of outstanding ARM loans we've seen in the U.S. In, in over 20 years. And so default activity remains extremely low. Foreclosure sales, 70 percent below pre-pandemic levels. New builds are very low. Existing home sellers are, are selling their homes at a 27 percent lower rate in February than they traditionally do. So every potential possibility that we have for, for increased supply is running well below normal levels. And there's no there's no line of sight into how that returns. The demand side there, there absolutely is, right? And we're seeing that in terms of when rates fall, you're seeing that demand return. Um, but that same lever that's pushing on demand is also holding supply tight. And, and there's less of a, a line of sight in, in, in terms of how that uh, that supply it's side returns. You did just give me one idea about how this, you know, when this will all play out, which is to say when the 10-year starts dropping. So in other words, if you look at the market now, we have people pricing in pretty extreme rate cuts kind of next year. It's like the more hawkish Powell gets, the more the near term goes up and the long term rates decline. If we get into a situation next year, Andy, where all of a sudden the 10 years down one and a half points, we're back at two and a half percent and people feel like, oh, I can move because now my new mortgage will be affordable and I'm going to list my house now because I'm worried that prices will fall more. Then I wonder if if we wait a year or so out, if it's going to be a very different story. It could be right, and what you tend to see is the 30-year tries to project where the where the 10-year and where the Fed is going. And so, sure. in in past rate cycles, 30-year rates peaked zero to three months before the 10-year, and uh, in, in before the Fed does. And so, we could see absolutely to your point, you could see 30-year rates and mortgage rates start to ease before the Fed starts to to let off the brakes. Though the question is, will that move the needle for sellers? It it absolutely has, and you can track demand right along with interest rates. But even when interest rates eased in, in January, early February, 
we didn't see a return of sellers to the market. And that's really where my concern is, is it hasn't ebbed and flowed directly with interest rates. And so there's no guarantee that that sellers are willing to sell at a five and a half or a five percent interest rate. Oh, sure. Rate. We'll have to see how that plays I out. I mean, wouldn't you think it? What was the prevailing rate pre-COVID? Probably something like in the fours. We'd probably have to get back down. It, it, again, it reminds me of Bitcoin. We have to get back down to the level at which the people in current homes would feel like they are translating their rate one for one before they're likely to leave. You know. Yep. Yeah, it'll be it'll be interesting for sure. And and if rates get that low, now you've got a resurgence of demand again to match that new supply. And so it's going to be a battle between those two dynamics as we move throughout 2023 and, and into 2024. Yeah, very odd and, and very important. Andy, thanks for your time. Always good to see you. you. Thank Andy you. Andy Walden of Black Knight. Still ahead, those recession jitters are not taking the fun out of one entertainment stock, hitting an all-time high today, doubling off its recent low, and with an analyst initiating coverage saying it can rally another 35% from here. Is it time to strike while the iron's hot? Tweet me your guesses at Kelly CNBC. And as we head to break, here's another look at markets, which continue to sink right now. The Dow's down 230 points, weighed down by Merck, McDonald's, and Travelers, interestingly enough, while Dow Inc. is leading the way. We're back after this. Now is the time to bring new ideas to your industry. And T-Mobile for Business has the advanced 5G solutions to make that happen. We're helping rethink patient-doctor interactions with real-time data sharing. We're tracking carbon with 5G sensors to help fight climate change. We're partnering with cities to connect roadways, cars, and drivers to minimize injuries. Disruptive thinking deserves a disruptive partner. So let's get started on what's next for your business. Step up your innovation at T-Mobile.com slash now. Welcome back to The Exchange. Markets looked stronger initially as Powell began speaking, but as we move through the afternoon here, even the Nasdaq has given up its gains. It's only down by 12 points. Same for the S&P right now, 39.73, so we're back below, or we are below 4,000. And the Dow right now down by 216. Now, the chips are among the leaders in the Nasdaq 100 today. Every name in the SMH ETF is in the green. AMD up nearly 3%. i got to mention NVIDIA, similar story. The VanEck is up 1.5% today. Meanwhile, check out the Global X Infrastructure ETF. ETF ticker PAVE, 30% off its recent lows last summer and only 3% away from its all-time high. This one getting a ton of attention. It's not just the chips. This has been a big area of strength. Calix, Martin Marietta, Alcoa, Deer, CSX, all in the green and among today's leadership. Martin Marietta using their earnings call this quarter to remind investors that states are allowed to use leftover COVID relief funds for infrastructure projects. They expect that to provide an extra $40 billion of funding in the company's top 10 states. So really significant fiscal stimulus here, even while the Fed is doing the opposite. Let's get to Tyler Matheson now for a CNBC News update. Tyler. Kelly, thank you very much. Uh, Good afternoon, everyone. After a two-year civil rights investigation prompted by the death of Breonna Taylor, the Justice Department says police in Louisville repeatedly used excessive force relied on invalid search warrants and discriminated against black residents in their enforcement activities. In a news conference this morning, Attorney General Merrick Garland called the conduct unacceptable and heartbreaking and said the DOJ has an agreement with local officials to work together on reforms. President Biden will lay out how he wants to cut the nation's budget deficits by a total of $2 trillion over the next 10 years when he releases his budget plans tomorrow. That's according to The New York Times, which says one of the measures he will propose is a new tax on households with more than $100 million that would apply to both earned income and unrealized capital gains. 
And around the globe, millions of people are holding demonstrations to mark International Women's Day, demanding equality for half of the planet's population. Kelly, back wow. to you. Tyler, thank you. And I'll see you soon, Tyler Matheson. Coming up, the head of America's largest energy port on what's driving demand for American oil and how the port's handling a new wave of exports back after this. Welcome back to The Exchange. U.S. oil exports soaring to record, le record levels in the past year, according to The Wall Street Journal, as the war in Ukraine is driving up exports to Europe as the West shuns Russian fuels. One of the clear beneficiaries of this shift is the port of Corpus Christi, the largest U.S. port in total revenue tonnage and the largest port in oil exports. Joining us now from Sierra Week in Houston is Sean Strawbridge, CEO of the port of Corpus Christi. Sean, it's great to see you again. Welcome. Thanks for having me back, Kelly. Is your trajectory just going to keep going up, 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 or is, is there some moderation after this uh, hot run you've been on? Yeah, that's a great question. I, we've seen tremendous growth in American energy exports as our allies and our partners continue to have that, that demand. Uh, and we've obviously seen some trade flow shifts uh, as a result of the, the sanctions that have been placed on Russian energy. Uh, at the port of Corpus Christi, we set records yet again in 2022 uh, with both crude oil and liquefied natural gas. You know, this country is now exporting over 10 billion cubic feet a day of natural gas, and certainly uh, on the crude oil, over 3 million barrels a day. 60% of that is moving through the port of Corpus Christi. But to your question about where do we see things going, uh, certainly with LNG, we can expect continued increase in exports as we see more liquefaction capacity come online. But crude is a different story. We're starting to see, certainly in the tight shale markets, uh, the production of the wells starting to flatten out. So we think there's going to be a, a plateauing on the uh, on the crude side. Yeah. Can you talk to us about that? Because we're getting more information this morning about that, the Permian uh, elsewhere. Where are we seeing volumes start to moderate? Uh, certainly in the Permian Basin, Kelly, uh, we're seeing well yields uh, down uh, fairly significantly. Uh, the, the top production, top producers are, are telling us this week that uh, we can expect a, a plateauing. And they still have capital discipline in terms of their deployment of, of capital. We're not seeing as many new wells being drilled as they're really focused on creating more shareholder value and returning uh, dividends to their shareholders as opposed to putting that capital back to work with new wells. So we certainly think that there is going to be a plateauing, which will likely drive up prices of crude oil. Anything unexpected to you as we move through Sierra Week and you guys all kind of connect the industry dots here, where do you think, uh, based on these conversations and presentations, the market's going to be in three or six months' time? Well, I think in the end, uh, three or six months is not a long time in the energy markets. Uh, so I still think we're going to see continued demand. I still think you're going to see some uh, great financial performance from the traditional energy producers uh, in, the, in the near term. Uh, longer term, though, the big talk this week was really about energy transition. Uh, a lot of talk about hydrogen, a lot of talk about carbon capture and sequestration. Uh, all of our customers have made decarbonization commitments to their shareholders and to society at large. So that's really where we're seeing capital deployment being uh, focused is on some of these new cleaner, greener uh, uh, energy supplies. And the Port of Corpus Christi, we're certainly, with our capital investment program, following suit. That's a great point. And, you know, it's, 
it's gone from being kind of like a joke to something verboten to now almost the feature piece of this whole conference is the energy transition. Uh, how quickly times change. So for if I'm you and I'm the port and I'm you know exporting oil and I'm exporting you know liquefied natural gas and I know we're going to be going through this transition and I know LNG is a bridge fuel, but you know okay fine let's expand the time horizon. Where are you going to be in 10 or 15 years? You know are you shipping uh, hydrogen of some kind? Is it carbon capture? I mean what does that look like? Yeah, that, that's that's a great point, and and that's where we have to be having that eye towards the future. Uh, we need to continue to protect our current portfolio of our hydrocarbon customers, but they are also going to be leading the effort when it comes to the transition initiatives. And certainly, hydrogen seems to be percolating to the top of the discussion, but there's still a lot of research and development that needs to go into this particular sector. So. We, we think that uh, a lot of capital is going to be invested in the sector, but I think we also need to manage the market's expectations about when those new cleaner, greener energy feedstocks will be able to reach the market economically, safely, and certainly competitively. Yeah, absolutely. Sean, appreciate you joining us. We'll let you get back to it. Sean Strawbridge from the Port of Corpus Christi. Still ahead, the pandemic pushed a lot of women out of the workforce, but they're staging a return, and employers are making moves to make sure that doesn't change. We have full details next. And don't miss the premiere of our new show, Last Call with Brian Sullivan. You can catch it starting tonight at 7 p.m. Eastern. I would very much look forward to that weeknight's Last Call. We're back after this. Welcome back. Women are making a return to the workforce. They've now gained more jobs than men for four straight months. And companies are making changes to make sure that doesn't change. What better day to highlight this on than International Women's Day? Sharon Epperson is here now with more. Hi, Sharon. Hi, Kelly. You know, roughly 90 million workers, mostly women, have child care, elder or other care responsibilities outside of their full-time jobs. That's according to a recent report by Boston Consulting Group. Having a plan to deal with caregiving has become a top priority for many employers to help them attract and retain workers. Here's a look at one company's approach and why it matters. Linda Martinez is a district manager at One Main Financial. More than two-thirds of the 9,200 employees at the personal lending company are women. Many, like Martinez, are also juggling caregiving responsibilities. We need to lead with empathy. We need to have that, that flexibility to really meet our team members where they need because we want to retain them. A recent report finds 61% of companies currently offer flexible work arrangements like telecommuting, compressed work weeks, or caregiver leave. Less than a quarter offer referrals and subsidies for child care. But that number is expected to jump to 50% within two years. How important is the child care issue for workers at your company? What became apparent really early on is what we offered pre-pandemic wasn't going to cut it moving forward. Heather McHale is the chief human resources officer for One Main and the mother of three, including a special needs child. She jump-started the company's caregiving benefits, adding subsidies for up to seven days of backup care. If I don't have an engaged, capable, well-trained, ready-to-be-present employee, ready to speak to a customer, that's a customer that I'm not going to be able to serve. So we look at what we're spending in our benefits and we look at what we're 
losing if we don't have that person there. If women participated in the labor force at the same rate as men, the Commerce Department found there would be more than 10 million additional workers. Sinan Buber, a labor economist at ZipRecruiter, has poured over the data and as the mother of two young boys, has felt its impact. If we can make the workforce more family-friendly so people can work longer hours, we're going to increase the labor productivity. ZipRecruiter found the majority of job seekers, both women and men, would work longer hours if they had access to affordable care options. Now, when we set out to do a story on caregiving and the workforce, every woman we spoke with had a personal story. It's not just women, though. More than half of U.S. workers are currently caring for children, parents, or adult family members, and there are men and women involved in the caregiving responsibility. You know, I think about remote work and how this, I understand that companies want to get people back in the office, but if you really want to keep people around through those difficult child-rearing years, that flexibility is enormous. And there's even been work on this showing that it improved, you know, people's, um, to some extent, improved fertility, <laughs> but also made it easier for them to stay in the workforce, for instance, during some of those years. Childcare being uh, so expensive, whether it's the woman or the man, yep. does this become more of a flashpoint, even as people have to return this year for the next five or 10 years when companies go, hey, maybe giving more flexibility is a way to kind of serve that goal in the long run. Absolutely, and it's even more of an issue now as many older workers are in the sandwich generation or, you know, Absolutely. many workers who have small children now and have aging parents. And as people are living longer mm -hmm. and living longer with chronic illnesses and, and disease, they're going to be caregiving responsibilities on that end. And also add to that special needs, children, totally. loved ones that need care. So there are so many people that are working uh, and their caregivers, too. Right. And that accounts for uh, so much of the U.S. economy. And the hardest part is just getting to the office sometimes, you know, so much of the job. I don't know if one main spoke to this, if that work can be done remotely or if, or if yes. to them you have to be on So they have, they have some that have to be in the branches. There are a lot of companies that have to have those frontline workers, but they can make it flexible in that they may come in later mm -hmm. if they have to drop off a child, if they have to go to the backup child care facility or something like that. So just being flexible and understanding that people want to work and they will work hard totally. if they are given the opportunity to have that flexibility to care for their families. Oh, yeah, when you're like, you know, it's so hard at home. I'd <laughs> happy to come here and yes, work. Yes, exactly. exactly. <laughs> Sharon, thank you so much. My pleasure. And don't miss the CNBC Your Money event. Women and Wealth, April 11th, will feature ways women can increase income, save for the future, and maximize today's opportunities. You can register for this virtual event by scanning that QR code on the screen or going to cnbcevents.com. Still ahead one more look at today's mystery chart the stock has doubled off its recent low it's up more than 20 percent this year and one analyst says there's more upside ahead we've got the name and what makes it a good buy next Welcome back to The Exchange. Let's take a closer look at an under-the-radar consumer and entertainment play. Shares of Bolero, the world's largest bowling operator, up more than 20% this year. Yesterday, the stock closed at its highest level since going public via SPAC in December of 2021. Company CEO Thomas Shannon was on Mad Money with Jim Cramer last week talking about their fortunes. Listen. I think we're the number one D-SPAC of 2021. Um... We're a real company, Jim. I mean, we broke through a billion dollars in revenue in December. That felt really good. We started with a million dollars a year in revenue when I bought uh, the original Wayne's, and, and now we're a billion. Uh, 353 million of TTM EBITDA. 
We're firing at all cylinders. My next guest just initiated Bolero with a buy and a $22 price target. Jason Tilchin is an analyst at Canaccord Genuity. Do you, I mean, this must be a fun job. Do you, do you have to do channel checks, Jason? Welcome. Thanks for having me, Kelly. Uh, it's actually funny you say that. We're, we're bringing the rest the whole research department out to a Bolero Center uh, next week to, to experience it in person after seeing the story <laughs> told uh, through our report. But it, it's really unique, um, as Tom said in, in the clip that you just played, um, to, to put out more than a billion dollars of revenue over the past year, um, well well ahead of what they projected at the time of going public, which is sort of the opposite of what you hear with most of the SPACs uh, that went public in 2021. I think that's one of the reasons why, as you said, it's one of the best performing uh, SPACs that debuted that year. Yeah, and that alone is worth highlighting. It really is because a lot of people have thrown out everything related with this. Why do you think they chose that? I mean, in retrospect, should or could they have done an IPO? They probably could have. Uh, you know, they had more than 100 million of cash in the balance sheet at the time they went public. It was really more uh, to give some liquidity to the private equity investor that came in uh, back in 2018. Um, but ultimately, this is a business that that is really quality. There's strong uh, growth in the top line, um, both organically and inorganically. And then on top of that, really strong margins inherited in the bowling business model. It was also interesting when he said, um, you know, their average customer is a six-figure household, and he has bowling centers in the suburbs, he told Jim, that are doing $10 million. What differentiates them from your typical mom-and-pop bowling alley? Yeah, it's really amazing. You know, the, when you talk about um, bowling, the stat really surprised me when I first started, but it's the number one participatory sport in the U.S., more than 67 million Americans bowl annually. And I think one of the things that really stands out is just accessible. Um, it's affordable. It's located close to home. Um, people of all ages and skill levels can can participate. And, and because of that, um, you're seeing really strong demand, especially coming out of the pandemic. Um, and one of the things that's unique about this story, um, there's 328 centers across the country. Um, they're seven times bigger than the next largest competitor, but still make up less than 10 percent of the total uh, bowling alleys that are in the U.S. So there's really uh, still an opportunity ahead of them to continue to acquire new centers uh, and put their operating playbook to, to work. Yeah, I mean, a ridiculous question. It sounds like they should just take over all of the bowling alleys at this point. Would there be any antitrust concerns if they tried to do that? I don't think, well, it would be it would be a lot of work. To, there's still 3,500 independently owned centers across the U.S., uh, which is, as I said, about 10 times the amount of centers they currently operate. So even though they're much larger than the next uh, the next player in the space, um, antitrust really, really shouldn't come into play here. Um, and, and what's really... Um, really special about the story is that the the management team has been together for, for more than two decades. So they've developed a really, um, really repeatable operating playbook. When they go in and acquire a new center, they can double the margins within the first 90 to 120 days. Hmm. Um, and then they go in and they make further investments uh, on the CapEx side to uh, improve the decor, install arcades, which are actually their highest ROI investment, oh, um, and also full-scale renovations of these buildings. Okay, I took the kids. All they did was the arcade, Jason. They just, I mean, I was like, they're just punching away at it and spending. So the, the arcade Kate, is it the real cash generator here? There, it's they're all the the bowling is also a cash generator. The bowling has a hundred percent incremental contribution margin. Um, the, the food and beverage is about seventy to eighty percent, and the arcade's about ninety percent. Um, but the low hanging fruit there is that there's still no arcade in about sixty five of Bolero Center. So there's an opportunity wow. um, for upside to current consensus as they add more um, arcades, things like that, and upgrade their centers. I, I find this totally fascinating. Thank you so much, Jason, for coming on, getting into the nitty gritty with us. We appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Jason Tilchin, Canaccord Genuity. That does it for The Exchange, everybody. For more of my thoughts on the market, you can always sign up. One easy step, cnbc.com slash newsletters, or hit that QR code on your screen. And coming up on Power Lunch, President Biden is said to announce a plan to increase taxes on those making $400,000 or more, but one detail creating some controversy. There's Tyler getting ready, getting those boxing gloves on. I'll join him on the other side of this quick break. 
You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.